0: Great. Um, We're in Matthew again. If you want to grab a Bible, if you haven't got one, then that's great. I'd encourage you to do that, um, to have a little look at what we're looking at this morning. Um, Getting back into this, I'm quite excited because I enjoy Matthew and was looking at where we finished. So we finished up the end of Matthew chapter 13, so we're into 14. And next week's like the feeding of the 5,000. Spoiler alert, amazing story. Week after, Jesus walks on water. That's like even better, I think, as like how miracles go. Really cool, awesome to preach on that. Like, love it. Loads of applications. Uh, and then I, I was kind of looking through Matthew 14 and realised that before that's another story, um, and it's it works as a flashback, if you like, a bit like in a movie. You know, where you're like, I don't understand if I'm watching this in real time or this happened 10 years ago. Matthew 14 is not 10 years, but it's the start of it. Is like a recollection from this guy, Herod, of an event that has already taken place. And it involves the greatest man ever born. That's according to Jesus. That's not just me saying that. The greatest man ever born being beheaded. That's the story. That's what's in Matthew 14. But before that, it's a bit grim. But before we read that, I just want to go to Matthew 11 first because I think it's important. It says this, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So we're talking about John the Baptist What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. So, Also, people have been going out into the wilderness and Jesus is saying, what were you looking for? Were you looking for this because you didn't find it? Were you looking for this because you didn't find it? You found a prophet and his name is John. And then he says, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you uh, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, these are the words of Jesus. We like the words of Jesus, don't we? This is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, so that's everybody here, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And I put it there, will arise no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I spoke on this passage a few months ago, so I'm not going to kind of repeat everything, but I talked about how we measure greatness um, and how we need to change, I think, how we look at that and how we measure it. and I I shared a similar story about my footballing ability and realizing I was rubbish even though I thought I was great. And I'm just gonna share another story that proves to you I haven't cracked this measuring business yet. I haven't cracked the knowing how great you are stuff yet and, and how we should measure it because as you will know since my knees have decided to become like butter, I don't play football anymore really, I don't run anymore. Instead I've taken up swimming. Which is great. It's a great sport. And I did a few lengths before Christmas to raise money for the Message Trust. And then I had my big surgery. I had like, some major knee surgery back in February. So I've slowly been getting back into it. And the last few weeks, I've been trying to go once or twice a week. And so I've picked up where I left off, if you like. I'm not a bad swimmer. I'm all right. I can only do front crawl or maybe the occasional like, half length for butterfly and then like, collapse at the end of the pool. But I'm a competent swimmer. And I feel like when I'm in the pool, I'm a good swimmer. And it doesn't help when I look around the pool and I see others swimming and I'm like, I've smashed this. You know, there's somebody doing breaststroke, having a chat with their mate. That's great. I'm like, putting the lengths in, throwing a tumble turn just for good measure. All of that's happening. I feel like king of the pool. And this happened to me maybe like six weeks ago. I was feeling like that. Wrongly, I should say. I was surveying the pool that I was king of in Chesterfield. I was Michael Phelps of the Chesterfield swimming pool and then this bloke walked in and like he is a big fella like his muscles his arm muscles were bigger than my legs and I'm thinking well he's just going to sink how does he do that with that kind of amount of muscle that being that big I thought well okay well give him the benefit of the doubt I'll use him as like you know my pace setter So he'll he'll be a good pace setter for me. I'll slow it down slightly for him, and I'll use it as a a pace setter just to help him and help me be consistent. Two lengths in, I'm thinking, oh, this guy's quick. I'm out of breath already, but I give him the benefit of the doubt again. He's just gone out too fast. He's seen me, and he's been intimidated. (laughs) He's seen, like, you know, all this extra stuff here, and he's thought, that guy's a swimmer, and he's gone out too fast he'll soon be in trouble. I tell you, like 40 lengths later, he's still pounding and he's an absolute machine. And I gave up after like three or four lengths of trying to keep up with him. And I shrunk so small, I was like, I went from being king of the pool or thinking I was king of the pool to thinking, you know what, I can't even swim anymore. I may as well give up. Because compared to him, I wasn't a good swimmer. And you see, by measuring greatness like that, we always end up falling short. And we always end up doing ourselves in, and we never end up actually measuring greatness properly. Like, that's how the world does it, isn't it? And that's how our hearts do it. And we've got a crack that that's not how we should measure greatness, because Jesus doesn't. If Jesus doesn't measure it in that way, then why do we do it in that way? Why are we always trying to get one up on somebody else? And be, the be- being the best we can be is great, but not trying to overdo it to uh, the expense of others. You know, if I was to ask who, the, who, who are the greatest, people might say Ali, or people might say Usain Bolt. Well, Jesus says John the Baptist. And almost like our reaction to who, who is the greatest human, human, so not including Jesus in that, we might actually, if we agree with Jesus, say it's John. A bloke who looks unimpressive, a bloke who spent time in the wilderness, he ate honey and locusts, wore questionable clothing, but he loved Jesus relentlessly and he was an amazing man. And actually he displays it in this chapter even to the point of death. Like He loses his head in this story. And it just got me thinking in terms of greatness that God is more concerned with your faithfulness than your fame. And I think it's more important we're faithful to God than we'll ever be famous. That you'll ever be a somebody that you'll ever have your name in lights, it's more important that our name is in lights to Jesus, if that makes sense, that Jesus looks at us and goes, yes, that guy, he's doing great things for me. Yes, that girl, that woman, she's doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. And our faithfulness, it can be in small things and being faithful in those, it can be in faithful in the big things, but it's also being faithful to God when no one's watching. You know, when you're by yourself, When people are, you know, you're not at church on a Sunday, you know, are you spending time with him? Are we being faithful in those bits? John, the most, uh, according to Jesus, the greatest guy ever, dead in his mid-thirties, a burning light, but a faithful guy. And I just want to read this passage, and I just want you, as we read this passage, to just remember that, that Jesus says John's the greatest. As I just read this, Matthew 14, it's a messy story, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, so that's his title. It means he was like in charge of the fourth kingdom. He's actually called Herald. Herald? Harold, no. Herod. Maybe he should have been Harold. That would be easier. It gets worse as well. Herod uh, Antipas is his name. And he heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. For the, This is why it gets confusing. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias... Um, thankfully we, we think she's not called her name doesn't begin with H they think she's called Salome so this girl uh, danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask prompted by a mum she said give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter like what do you want for your birthday? what do you want to celebrate? oh I'd love someone's head on a platter like, a bit of silver because then it'll look nice it's a weird request. John beheaded in the prison. So he sent and he had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Wow. And she brought it to her mum. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And then the next verse, Jesus heard this. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus is rocked by it in in some sense. You know, is. The guy he's saying is the greatest, a guy who he loves, has gone, has been killed. So he goes to a desolate place to grieve, to take some time out. But we read that he doesn't get that because 5,000 people plus come after him. And even in that, I'm not going to ruin next week, but even in that he shows compassion. Death of John the Baptist, but he still loves people. He doesn't let things get in the way of loving people. So to sum up the story, which I'm going to do really quickly, Herod Antipas is the Roman ruler of the region where Jesus does ministry. Hem- hence, that's why we know who he is and why he's important. Uh, and he has a wife and that's fine. That's cool. He also has a half brother. Some people think it's his brother called Philip, who's also first, well, not first name, but known as Herod. And um, so there's Philip, and Philip has a wife called Herodias, or Herodias, whatever, I don't know, one of those two. So they're both married to separate people, happy days. Except for Herod Antipas, the Roman ruler, likes Philip's wife, and Philip's wife likes Herod Antipas. So he doesn't want to shack up with his brother anymore. Uh, wants to get rid of him, so they get a divorce. And Herod goes, oh, I'll get a divorce too, because then I can get with Herodias, and it will be this beautiful thing. Except it's incredibly messy and incredibly damaging. And John says, no, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing goes against who God is, what God's doing, it's wrong. And Herod Antipas, surprise, surprise, doesn't like that. So John gets thrown in prison, and he's bound up. And John's basically a bit like a thorn in their side, or maybe like, even like a bit like their conscience. Like, what you're doing's wrong. Come on, guys. What are you doing? That's your brother's wife. That's not right. It's wrong. It's immoral. The list goes on. Herod doesn't like it. Puts John in prison. But because of the fear of the people, because everyone knows John's awesome... Even though he's a bit kind of, you know, out there, everyone thinks he's great. And so Herod doesn't want to do anything to John because there could be like a bit of a rebellion against his reign. He doesn't want to get himself into any hot water, so he just throws him in prison soon. And it comes to his birthday, we've no idea how long John's in prison before it becomes Herod's birthday bash. And um, all the dignitaries come round. You read Mark's thing, and it kind of says, you know, and everybody was invited. Like, this was a proper party. This wasn't Herod and Herodias going out for a dinner for two. This was like, we'll invite everyone. Everyone will come. The wine will flow. The, the on-trend current music will be playing, and everyone will know it. And it will be this brilliant event, and they'll drink too much, and there will just be this kind of this atmosphere that is not a positive place to be. Not a good environment. And within that, we're told that Herodias' daughter okay, dances and it pleases the people. Now, when it says dances here, I don't think she's doing the Macarena. Just saying, she's probably not doing this. And everyone's going, oh, that's so lovely. Look at her go. It would be sensual. It could be sexual. If they had poles, maybe a pole was involved. But she's doing it for her uncle. Weird, eh? Messed up, right? Not just me that thinks this, I hope. For her uncle, and her uncle loves it. Now, his niece, they reckon maybe 14, maybe 15. That's what's going on, and John the Baptist's in prison, obviously. If John could see what was going on, John would be saying, this is wrong, What are you doing? And Herod knows it. And Herodias knows it. So Herod, in his wisdom, or lack of, says, Oh, that was such a pleasing dance to me when you did the Macarena. It was beautiful. Whatever you want, I'll give you. And in Mark's gospel, it says up to half the kingdom. I mean, that's quite up to half. You can have anything you want. Palaces by the lakes. You You can do this, you can do that. As much wealth as you want. Like, if someone offered you that and said, you know, I don't know, well, I suppose Prime Minister May doesn't have that kind of authority. But the Queen, maybe, said, I'll give you up to half of everything I've got. What do you want? Oh, I want my enemy's head on a plate, please. Like, that, that's the response. She goes to talk to her mum and says, oh, we'll get John the Baptist's head on a plate. Forget about the palace. Or forget about owning land. Or forget about wealth. Or anything else you ever wanted, darling daughter. We want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that is exactly what happens. Herod doesn't like it, but he's made a rash vow. And because he's made a rash vow, and because the people are now expecting him to keep it, he follows through, and John gets killed. The greatest ever. Dead, mid-thirties, in prison. Doesn't seem to achieve so much of his life in many senses. But Jesus says he's the greatest. And John ends up dead. And this is an important point. I think this is the whole point of the passage. John ends up dead because of the sin of other people. It's not that John's done anything wrong. John's been wrongly imprisoned. But because of the sin of other people, it affects John. John. And when I'm talking about sin, I'm talking about our rebellion to God, and I'm talking about how that manifests itself in our rebellion to God, and how that manifests itself in our relationships with one another, how we treat each other, whether we love one another, whether we're gracious, whether we're kind, whether we're all of those things or we're not. But our sin, that stuff, has consequences. And in this case, it was the death of John the Baptist. That's fairly serious as consequences go, right? You know, they used to say when you were growing up, you know, every white lie has a consequence, and that lie grows into a bigger lie, and a bigger lie, and a bigger lie. And sometimes you're like, oh, got away with it. And then it comes back to bite you years later, whatever it might be. Well, this consequence was somebody died, and it made a mess of, well, John's life, but also makes a mess of Herod and Herodias and all those things. Herod, I hope we can agree, makes some really poor decisions here, I think. I don't think we can applaud Herod for making some good life choices. He makes some really poor ones, you know, like getting divorced to marry your brother's wife. That's a pretty poor kind of decision. And then if that wasn't bad enough, being attracted to your niece, enjoying her dancing, giving her half the kingdom, murdering someone. It's not gone well for Herod, has it? It's like a series of unfortunate events where it's just escalated and got worse for him. The list goes on and on and on. And I want to just point out, and us to think about in this story, because we might go, well, I'm not like Herod. We go, well, that's good. That's good if we're not. But actually, there's some stuff here that I think we can learn from, is that I think as human beings, we tend to do anything to try and avoid our own sin. Like, we all mess up. We all get stuff wrong. But we try and do anything we possibly can to take responsibility for that. To try and, like... Shift the blame. So here, Herod's like, if I get rid of John, my problems disappear. I've got away with it. That's Herodias' thinking. Get rid of John. Get rid of my conscience. It's fine. We can carry on. Life will be a beautiful thing. And another way of thinking about this is we feel conviction for things that we know we've gotten wrong before God. We feel something, a tug even, in our heart that says, oh, I know this is wrong. And in that moment is when we face a decision. In that moment is, do we just continue like Herod does? Or do we actually heed the words of John who says, stop, what you're doing is wrong, turn around, you can get this right. And John calls out their behavior. And I mean, I'm sure this is all of us. But for me, I'm a, I've been a bit of a deflector before. You know, something happens, somebody offends you, or you offend somebody else, and you end up going, well, if they'd not said that in the first place, I wouldn't have had to respond the way I did. Therefore, it's their fault, not mine. And so you justify the whole time. It's like, well, if they'd not done that, I wouldn't have done this. Or like, I'm driving along, and if that rock hadn't jumped out at me in the car, we wouldn't have had an accident. It's blatantly not my fault that these things happen. Like, all the time, we try and make it as if we're not to blame. That something or someone else is. Herod plainly does that, I think. Um, He makes excuses. Comes up with hundreds of reasons, I'm sure, to justify it. It's not me. I'm not the one with the problem here, God. I'm not the one that's doing something wrong. It's John. John's being all judgy on me. Who's John to say what I'm doing is right or wrong? John's the one who's got the problem. I'm absolutely fine. Almost, you could have seen it. John, if you carry on winding me up, mate, if you keep nagging me, lad, it's going to go worse for you. I'll have your head on a platter. Probably didn't say that because I think it takes him by surprise. But, like, you can just get this sense that you carry on. You will reap the consequences, John. At no point does Herod go, ah. Actually, John might be right here. He never takes that moment to pause. And I think, just as a, as a, as a thing here, because we all have this, when you have that moment, I mean, I believe it's God the Holy Spirit if we're following after Jesus. When you feel that tug and you know, you know that this is something that is not right, we have in that moment the opportunity to stop, don't we? We don't have to follow through with it, we don't have to carry on. And in that moment, don't ignore it or suppress it. Listen to it. Listen to what God says and his word. You know those with a prophetic voice like John? He was the one who went before Jesus and kind of prophesied that there was someone to come. He spoke truth to a generation that didn't want to hear about truth. And uh, the way that he said it, I think, you know, there's, there's ways of communicating truth, isn't there? There's ways of us today communicating what we believe to be right and wrong. We could just be like, I don't know, let's just say John did it like this. That John went, Herod, you're wrong, what you're doing is uh, not lawful. Um, and he could have just been like, and you suck, and you're an evil man. And, and you know what? Your new wife, she's not even pretty. There's so many better girls out there that you could have, Herod. He could have done it like that. Now, I don't think he did because he's John the Baptist and he's the greatest, according to Jesus. I'd wager that John the Baptist was like, Herod, mate, I love you. But what you're doing is wrong and it's going to make a mess of your life. It's going to hurt you. It's going to mess you up. Don't do it. This is what God wants and this is God's best for you. And I want what God's best for you is. You see, there's a difference there, isn't there? There's ways of communicating truth that don't get people's backs up necessarily in an aggressive way. And you know what? I reckon if in this world, let's just take our town, we all lived in a way that was right before God. So Romans 12 is something we come back to a lot of the time. It talks about outdoing one another in honor and being zealous and loving your enemies and showing kindness and showing grace. Can you imagine what our town would be like if everyone did that? It would be awesome, wouldn't it? Wouldn't be a great place to live? Everyone's loving. Everyone's being kind. Everyone's outdoing one another and showing honor. Like, everyone's loving their enemies. Our community will be so great. And actually, there's a challenge here in, for us as Christians to go, okay, this might not be popular in the world. The world has their own agenda for how life should be. But this is what God says. And so I'm going to go after it because I think God knows better than I do. Maybe that's uncomfortable for some of us. Maybe that feels uncomfortable for some of us, but we just go, okay, God knows better than I do, and I'll wrestle with what that might look like and how we can be those that make a difference. Because I think, as people, if we're people that are quick to repent, which, in other words, is quick to turn around, quick to hold our hands up and say, you know what, I've got this wrong, I think that transforms relationships. I also think it can transform communities, and I think it's born out of repentance. It's like, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go God's way here. If everybody did that, as Christians, if we all did that, it would make a phenomenal difference to our lives, but also to the lives of the people that we're invested in and spending time with. I think a mark of someone who follows after Jesus is we're quick to repent. We're quick to say, I'm not Jesus and I need him in my life. I need to live for him. Because his standard is higher than our standard. And we, we will try and we will fail, but it's when we do get it wrong, what then do we do? That's the mark of someone who's fallen after Jesus. They turn around. Herod flat out ignores it. And there's massive danger in just flat out ignoring what God has to say. And you'll see that he gives power and influence to the wrong people. I don't know if you've ever... I, I, this didn't happen to me at school. I, I was like with the kind of computer game guys, you know. We were really cool. Um, but there was, you know, in, in school there was always the wrong crowd you know there was always oh there's those guys over there and i know like my mum and dad would have had like serious issues if i'd started hanging out with them instead of computer they loved that i just played halo and actually i didn't didn't play that of course because that's you know shooting and violent i'd played um something with ponies and rainbows mario kart actually i did love a bit of mario kart um happy things like and they i think they were delighted that actually. I wasn't getting in with the perceived wrong crowd. But whoever we're spending time with, whatever we're doing, because we're in the world, we have a choice of will we let God influence how we think and how we feel and what we say or will we let the crowd, whoever they might be? And Herod here gives too much attention to what the crowd has to say and rejects the prophetic voice of John. And you know what? We face a choice every day as a Christian with who we're going to listen to. Do we listen to what God says about our life, or do we listen to what the enemy would say? That the enemy would say, you're worthless. Nobody cares about you. You're rubbish at this. You're rubbish at that. You won't make a difference in this life. Oh, if you don't turn up, no one will care if you're missing. That's what the enemy would have to say. God's saying, no, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. Like We have a choice, don't we, as to whose voice we listen to. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Sometimes, you know, with church, we can, we can view ourselves in two ways. And I apologize if you heard me say this before. But you can view yourself, you know, we're both, there's the paradox of that we're, we're sinful and that we get things wrong. But also the Bible talks about us as saints. It talks about us like 1 Peter does, as that we're a new people. We're holy, we're redeemed, we're changed, we're children of God. And so you've got this paradox that you're kind of both at the same time. And you can overemphasize one to the, to the detriment of the other. So you could say, oh, you know what? I'm such a wretched person. And the Satan will be going, yeah, you are. Yeah, boy. Yeah, you are. Who occasionally gets things right. Occasionally does good for the kingdom of God. Or you can say, I'm a child of God. I mean, you can use the word saint if you want to, but I think you'll get people's backs up if you start going around saying, Hi just your local saint coming into your shop like but view yourself in that way that you're a son of god a daughter of god who sometimes gets things wrong sometimes falls short i think actually turning around and looking at the second way will revolutionize how you view yourself in light of who god is that god loves you that god wants what's best for you that god wants you to delight in him and follow after him and yes we are going to fall short but what happens when we do That's the whole point of this passage. When we get things wrong, are we going to listen to what God has to say? It's really important that we hear what he says about us. And I have this thing that I tend to do, that whenever I'm making, this can be like big life decisions, but it can also be seemingly trivial things as to should I say that or should I not say that? Um, Should I communicate this on social media or should I just hold back and not say it? Or have I got the tone of this right or the tone of that right? Is I stop So before I hit enter, before I hit send, I stop, and I'll say to myself, "Is this something I'm feeling peaceful about? Is this something that would be in line with who God is?" I might look at Romans 12 and go, "Is this honouring? Is this bringing glory to God? Is this kind?" And if it doesn't fill those criteria, I just delete it. That's just one practical way of doing it in terms of social media. Is I'll stop and I'll pause and I'll wait and I'll go, "Is this something that actually is good for me? But is it good for God? Is it good for others?" Is this something that's honorable? Does it build up or does it destroy? Because it's really easy to get a quick word in, isn't it? You know, especially in this culture of it's never my fault, it's somebody else's. You know, if somebody harms you or says something to you, you really want to, like, get them back maybe. That's your natural thing to do is, like, vengeance will be mine and it will be swift. And yet actually sometimes, it's, well not sometimes, all the time, it's really good to not go down that line and stop and pause and say actually is this something that brings glory to God? Is this something that I'm feeling peaceful about before God? Is this something that's right? Is this a taste of heaven that I'm giving to people and giving to my own heart or not? And then off the back of that I make decisions. Is this something I'll continue to pursue or will I listen to the still small voice conviction i want to say this if it leads to repentance is a really good thing if you feel in the weight of something leads you to go god i want to get right with you again that is an amazing thing but if we don't turn around it just leaves us where we are and we don't respond it just gets worse for us it just gets more messy for our life like it does for herod and we need to we need to we don't live in a christian country anymore no matter what anybody says, we don't live in a Christian country. We live in a godless world. That's what we live in, a world that hates God. People might not say it, but that's what it is, that a world that hates God. And none of us like to hold up our hands and say, we may have got this right, or we may have got this wrong. But I think one of the critical ways of us shining brightly into the darkness, of displaying the glory of God, is that we're different to the rest of the world. And maybe that can be in that we're quick to repent. Maybe that can be in quick to say, I'm not the hero that actually you all think I am. I've got things wrong and I need to be right with God. Because if we look exactly the same as the world, then how are people gonna differentiate? I know the Bible is the most popular book in the world, right? But it's because people like me have got like 40 copies. (laughs) Most people have never read it in their life. It's not taught in school in the same way that it was anymore. Nobody knows the stories. Jesus is a swear word. People say, Jesus wept. You know, people say, oh my God, this, oh my God, that. Like, the world is different now to how it was even 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Society's changed. Culture's moved on. For better or worse, however you view that, it's changed. So people don't know what God's standard is anymore, which means they're not reading the Bible to find out, which means they're looking at you you say you're a follower of Jesus, they're looking to you to see what it means to follow Jesus. They're not going to, they're not just going to go, oh, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to find a Bible. For... Some people will do that, but it'll be few and far between. Most people will look at your life and go, does this stack up? Am I seeing something different or does it just look like me? And I tell you, repentance is the thing that looks different because we are going to be exactly the same as everybody else and that we fall short and mess up, but it's what we do with that that counts. Whether we carry on on our course or we say, oh, actually, I've got, this wrong. I've got this wrong here. And I want you to see that John's death here, like, it doesn't actually change anything for Herod. We think by, like, carrying on and getting rid of the problem or the personnel, or oh, I just won't talk to that person anymore, so the problem will disappear, we think that solves our problems somehow, but it doesn't. Killing John didn't solve Herod's problem, it just made it worse. And actually, an innocent man died for no reason because of somebody's sin, because he couldn't be bothered repenting. But you know what the good news is, for those that do turn around, is that actually there was somebody's death who does count. Now, John's death doesn't save me, even if he's the greatest human being. But Jesus' death does So that when we turn around, when we say, I've got this wrong and we put our trust in Jesus again in the midst of trial or in the midst of uncertainty and we come to him again, we've got someone who's died for us. We've got someone who's been raised to new life for us. So actually, the payment for our sin and all that stuff and all that rubbish is paid and taken upon Jesus. It means that it's not a wasted life. It means that it counts for something. It means that our repentance is not in vain. It matters, because Jesus died for it. And it means it's secure as well. I don't know if you've ever had this. I have this with my kids all the time. They will do something, and then they'll go, oh, sorry, Daddy. And then they'll do it again two minutes later. And I, have this conversa- I had this conversation recently with someone at Soul Survivor. Like this kid did something, he like kicked my tent. It wasn't one of our guys. And I said, you're gonna apologize for that? You can't just kick a tent. And then he kicked the tent again. And then he said, I'll apologize later. It was something like that. And I was like, that doesn't work. Like, if you're not sorry, if you're genuinely not rep- like, if you're repentant, the idea is we'll change. Like, by God's grace. And, I, and th- that can be a lengthy process. Like, it's not, it's not like instant noodles. It's not done straight away. It can, be, it, can be a, it can be a journey. But my point is, like, in our hearts, we've got to genuinely want to change and be right with God. That's what genuine repentance means to literally, I'm going this way and I'll turn around. I'm not going that way anymore. I've turned my back on that. I'm not even like, I've gone the complete opposite. That's what it means. And to do that, it's got to be genuine. And that's what makes the difference is actually when we genuinely turn around, it's completely secure because Jesus died for it and rose again for it. And he was completely perfect. Which means if we genuinely say sorry... Like, it's something that's completely accepted and it's complete. There's no, like, gray area in that. That We put our trust in Jesus. He meets us in that. And I've just got a couple of really quick thoughts for us to finish as applications. Because just coming back to that thing about John, as I read this passage and I thought about John's life and I thought about what Jesus said about John, I thought, how is it possible? How is it possible that someone in their mid-30s who did stuff in the wilderness, like, he didn't have a million Instagram followers. He wasn't on Twitter. He didn't have any of that. How can he be known as the greatest man ever? Like, he he dies before he's even begun, many might say. And I, I think there's a couple of things we can learn from John. The first one's this, the best is yet to come. I think John the Baptist knew that. I think John, when he's in prison, knew the best is yet to come, that this isn't it, that there is more to live for than this moment. I will carry on unashamedly proclaiming who Jesus is, but this isn't it. I'm in a cell. It stinks. It's rubbish. I could die any day, but this isn't it. Sometimes in our state, we play the short game. I think Herod played the short game. He went, oh, get rid of this problem. It'll all be okay. But it was momentary. Sure, maybe he felt bad, but a week after John the Baptist was beheaded, he's probably thinking, brilliant, problem solved, love in life. But he wasn't playing the long game. He was playing a very short game. Whereas John, I think, well, this isn't it. He saw that the best is yet to come. Because following God is not easy, is it? If the world is like against God, to actually live for him and to shine in the darkness is not an easy thing to do. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, I think it's really like... It says this, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's so much more to come for those that follow Jesus. Jesus. There's gonna be bumps in the road, but there is so much more to come. We have to play the long game. And the second thing I wanna say about John is what made him the greatest. People will not remember necessarily what you look like. They will not remember how long you took to style your hair in the morning. They will not remember whether you wore shorts in the winter. They won't remember those things. They won't know what your prescription is for your glasses. They won't care don't care whether you were on trend, whether you had four Instagram followers or four million Instagram followers, nobody cares. Nobody will care. When I look back at this now, you read the Gospels, what do we know about Jesus? We know very little about what he looked like. I mean, I know he wasn't white, but we, we don't know much about him. It's not like we get to John chapter 1 and it says, and here is Jesus, blue eyes, blonde hair, five foot six, ripped. We don't know. Had a bit of an accent. Like, we don't know anything about him. Why? Because it's not that important. What we do know about him is what he did and what he said. And I think what we learn from John here is that our legacy is in what we say and what we do not what we look like. I think the world is obsessed with what it looks like but I think it needs to be what we say and what we do. What are you going to spend your days doing? What are you going to spend your days living for? What are you going to give your life for? Will it be the kingdom of God or will it be for something else? Because we only get one shot. We just have this life, this moment. John's legacy, even though he died mid-30s, lives on to this day. 2,000 years ago, we're talking about him. His actions, his words, they matter. The things you say, the things you do make a difference and they matter. Even when you feel like you may be standing for something and nobody seems to listen, it matters. And people remember. People remember. Remember, because God's truth is never chained. It's never in vain. This is 2 Timothy 2, and I want to finish with this. It says, remember, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and this is my gospel for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. So Paul is in chains. He's chained like a criminal for believing what he believes and saying what he says. And then he says this, God's word is never chained. The truth, what he lives for, is not chained, even though he is And he's in that place and he can't do much about it. What he says, what he proclaims is not chained. And he says this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So he endures everything for the sake of people that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know what, for me, like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than John probably was when he lost his head. Well, he didn't lose it when it was taken from him. And I go, oh well, you know we have this thing, don't we? We have this thing in our mind. We're like, well, when I'm this age, I'll do this, and I'll do. Even me and Grace have done it now. We're like, you know, we'll get, we'll have some kids, and then by the time I'm X age, the kids will be grown up, and it's party time. And I'm like, I'm so deluded. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Evangeline's going to live with us till she's forty or something. Actually, I take that back. Actually, I'd love for her to just, that would be great. I love my daughter. But, like, we have these ideas and these things, and we're like, oh, life will be this, and life will be that, and I'll have this job, and I'll do this, and I'll do that. And it never goes that way. never goes as we plan it in our mind. You know, when you were a kid and you drew what you wanted to be when you grew up, I didn't draw this. Believe it or not, I was a professional footballer. But obviously, I'm not. (laughs) And I'm here. But you know what? That's great. And I'd rather be here than playing football. Thing is, like, we've got limited time now, and you want to leave a legacy. You want people to go, oh, that person. what did?" And it's about what we do and what we say. For me, I want to spend all my days proclaiming that excellency of who God is, that he calls people out of darkness and into light. I want to give my life for that. That's what his church is for, that actually we as a people following after God can proclaim the excellencies of who God is to people that don't yet know him. That's why there's baptism, that's why there's new life, that's why people are putting their trust in Jesus. And my challenge is, with all the stuff that goes on in life and for everything that goes on, John is called the greatest because his life is about Jesus and his life is given over to following after Jesus and preparing the way for Jesus and he does it in word and deed and that's why we remember him 2,000 years later. So there's the little challenge for you kind of, as we go away from today. What am I going to give my life for? What am I going to take a stand on? What are people going to see when they see me? Because they haven't picked up the Bible, but they know I follow Jesus. Will I be someone who's quick to repent? Will I be someone who says, yes, I'll follow after you at all costs? It's challenging stuff. It's not easy. But that's why we have two Corinthians four. We don't lose heart, even though we're wasting away. Because there is eternal glory coming that far outweighs it all. It'll be worth it because there's so much more to come. The best is yet to come, guys.